time I checked, I was still a kid. Childish, childish. This all freaks me out a bit. Hey, after you drop off the kids or put them to bed, turn on Childish with real life friends and podcasting virtuosos Greg Fitzsimmons and Allison Rosen. Laugh about the struggles and joys of parenthood. Grow closer to your children. Learn something useful or not. Maybe feel less alone. And maybe even put the spark back into your love life. Childish is for people who are parents or had parents. If you had no parents, maybe check out WTF with Mark Marin. Subscribe to Childish. New episodes coming soon wherever you listen to podcasts. Childish, oh shit. Last time I checked, I was still a kid. Childish, childish. This all freaks me out a bit. Childish, oh shit. How can I pet when I'm still a kid? Childish, oh shit. Allison Rosen. Allison Rosen is your new best friend. Allison, Allison. Hey everyone. Hi. Hello. It is me, Allison Rosen. Welcome to another episode of Allison Rosen is your new best friend. I'm sitting here with my guest, Lori Gottlieb. She's a therapist. She's a New York Times bestselling author. She writes the Dear Therapist column in the Atlantic and she pops up as an expert on the Today Show, Good Morning America, NPR, CNN, among many others. And her new book called Maybe You Should Talk to Someone is a memoir and it's being turned into a TV show and Eva Longoria is involved somehow. And I, I would like to know the details of that. Um, Hello and welcome. Thank you. It's so nice to be here. It's so nice to have you. Um, In the course of my research into you and your background, I've come across like so many articles. So now I feel like I need to read your other books. I need to read all of your articles. I'm very, very fascinated by what you do. Um, And I'm loving Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. I The book is about 412 pages, and I'm a little over halfway through. And normally I would begin speed reading just to, to see, you know, before someone comes, but I'm enjoying it so much. I, I didn't, I want to be able to savor it. So I am speaking to you as someone who has only read half. So I may ask questions that are answered in the book. Okay. I'll try not to feel any spoilers. <laughs> well, no, I do. I just personally, I do need to know. Uh, so the book is a memoir and you as a, you talk about your, you, you introduce the readers to some, to various patients and your life as a therapist, but something happens. Um, you have, you go through a breakup and that is what makes you decide you need to get into therapy. I assume you had probably done some therapy before. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, part of our getting licensed is there's a requirement that we do 500 hours, but I think most people who want to be therapists probably have done some therapy right. before. That's what I figured. Um, but it's very different going back. When you're when you're doing your, your internship and you're doing this 500 hours, you don't really know what it's like to be a therapist yet. And so when you go back after you've established your practice, it's a very different feeling. Right. Um, in what ways... Well, no, I'm, I'm going to ask the question that I, that I was headed, headed towards before, which is when you start therapy with uh, a therapist in the book named Wendell... Um, you really want to be able to diagnose the guy who just broke your heart. Like here's, here's, he was a sociopath or he was this or that. And you're looking for that kind of info. Um, Do you ever find that? Well, I didn't want to diagnose him. I just wanted my therapist to validate my position, which was, um, you know, that's what your friends do. And I talk in the book about the difference between idiot compassion and wise compassion, where idiot compassion is what our friends do. Mm -hmm. So idiot compassion is you dodged a bullet. He was a jerk. You're so lucky this happened. Um, And it makes you feel better in the short term, but it doesn't help you in the long term. And wise compassion is what therapists do and what my therapist did, which is that they hold up a mirror to you and say, I want you to look at this from a different angle. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, and I was, I was, I was pissed. I mean, <laughs> you know, you go and you're in the middle of this crisis. And, um, but what he picked up on was, and I, maybe I should tell people what the, what the boyfriend thing was. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so please. they know what we're talking about. Yeah. Um, so, uh, the, the guy and I were supposed to get married and, uh, he tells me at the 11th hour that, 
um, he's decided he can't live with a kid under his roof for the next 10 years. That kid is my eight-year-old who had not been hiding in a closet the whole time we were dating. <laughs> right. um, and so and so the, the story seems very cut and dried to me where it's like, he's wrong. I'm, I'm sort of the person who is wronged here. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted my therapist to say, yeah, that's, a, that's exactly what happened. Um, but when I tell him my version of the story, and I purposely say my version of the story, because when people come in, they are telling their version, he says to me as I go through this thing about, well, you know, now I've wasted all this time dating him and I'm in my 40s and half my life is over. And he picks up on that statement that I make about half my life is over. Mm-hmm. And that becomes what our therapy is about. In what ways do you think it helped you as a patient, as a client or patient of his to be a therapist? And in what ways did that hinder the process for you? I think that when you're the patient, you have to be the patient that you can't have your therapist hat on. You know, you would have the tendency, I think, to, to kind of backseat drive. Like I wouldn't have said it that way, or (laughs) I would have done it differently, or that's not, um, but you can't do that. Um, and I think too, sometimes when he would ask questions, I would, think about, well, I I know what he's getting at with that question Mm -hmm. and I want to look good. So I'm (laughs) going to answer it this other way. Um, But you can't do that because you're not there to perform or entertain them or to be liked by them in the same way. Obviously, you want your therapist to like you. But I think that the things that that we want to, the way we want to present ourselves isn't always the way we're going to get help. Was that hard for you to to take off your therapist hat? Um, At times it was, yeah. Yeah, but I I mean, I very much did with him all the things that my patients do with me. There was this woman who would often be there in the waiting room um, as I was coming or going. And, um, you know, I always thought, I wonder if he likes her sessions better (laughs) or does he dread mine? Is hers a relief to him? Um, One night I Google him. You know, I mean, and and my patients do that with me because inevitably they slip up. They'll say something like, well, you know what it's like raising a middle school boy. And I've never said I'm a parent. I never said I have a child. I never said what gender, age, anything like that. I didn't realize that Google, Googling your therapist, I didn't realize how universal that was. I mean, I rec- your book is so good. It's so readable. I think everyone would enjoy it, but especially people in therapy because you get so many behind the, you get such a behind the scenes glimpse of what your therapist is thinking and, and all that stuff that I think people in therapy are naturally curious about. But yeah, I didn't, I didn't realize that everyone Googles their therapist. I don't know if everyone does, but it's not uncommon is, is, is the is the point. Um, and the only reason I did that was that he was telling me that I kept coming in with these stories like I was following my ex-boyfriend on social media and he would post pictures of salads and restaurants and, and things like that. And I'd say, you know, like someone in the throes of heartbreak is not is – not, you know, going out to dinner and, and I would, you know, sort of make these big stories about what he was posting. And my therapist said, this is really destructive. You need to stop doing that, which of course I knew. Mm -hmm. Um, and so he said, when you, when you sit down to do that, you need to do something different instead of typing in his name, do something different. So that night when I went to sit down at my computer and I had the, uh, urge to type in his name, I thought, no, I'm going to stop myself. I'm going to listen to my therapist and I'm going to do something different. And what I did differently was I typed in my therapist's name. (laughs) (laughs) And what I found was um, that his his father had died at a relatively young age. Um, He had been a marathon runner per the obituary that I found. (laughs) And um, and he, uh, you know, it, it seemed like like a really devastating loss. And I had been waxing poetic in my therapy sessions about how my aging father was was ill, but I was having all this time with him. He was about to turn 80. He was having, you know, we could have this, this beautiful time together. And then when I went back to therapy, I started editing myself because I was too ashamed to tell him that I had Google stalked him. And at the same time, um, you know, I didn't want to sort of rub it in with, with my own father. Eventually I did confess to him. And how did that go? It, it went, it went really well. Um, you know, I mean, I think that's the thing is that all the air returned to the room and we had this beautiful conversation about not about his father, but about mine and about what it was like for me to kind of hold that information about him. So I have 
made offhand comments about, do you know Nextdoor, the Nextdoor app? Oh, you don't know it? Oh, it's like so, a social networking app for people in your neighborhood. And basically what happens is you get on there and then you discover how petty and most likely racist everyone in your neighborhood is because it's... oh. In my experience, it's oftentimes people posting they're angry about people not picking up after their dog, which is understandable, but also like suspicious man on bike. And that just like it makes you hate all your neighbors. So I have talked like that in therapy. Not that it's like something I'm working out, but I've, I forget why I've mentioned it. But I've since I know that my therapist and I knew that my therapist and I lived in the same city. I didn't realize how close we are, but I've seen her post on Nextdoor occasionally. Her posts are always very understandable. There's like, they're very, uh, they're very rational. It's like, you know, tons of helicopters, go, you know, or tons of cops, what's going on here. Um, but I will never mention Nextdoor again. Cause oh, do you think she's seen you on there? No, because I don't post on there. Oh, you I just, just lurk. lurk. Yeah. <laughs> and the other thing with my but therapist... But now you know where she lives? Does it show her address? No, it doesn't show her address. It shows her neighborhood. But we've... Like, I... So when I was debating... When my husband and I were debating whether to buy this house and all the... It was like a, a long process. Um, I talked about that a lot in there. And, and she knows where this house is. So... And I know that she lives somewhat nearby because she's very familiar with the neighborhood. But... I don't. I didn't know the specific section that she lived in, but now I do. And then also because I have Googled her and found an old LinkedIn something or other, I know that she used to be something. She used to work in the entertainment industry, which she and I have never talked about. However, when I talk about things going on in my life, she always seems to know like so much about the needs of different networks, which if I didn't know, I would probably wonder, how does she know all this? But because I do know, I just say nothing. I'm wondering if you and I used to go to the, I feel this sounds very much like my old therapist. Oh, really? (laughs) She specializes in postpartum women. So I suspect it's not, I I feel like it might be a lot of the therapists in LA. I mean, we are in LA. Speaking of Lori, you have a showbiz background. A little bit. Yeah. Um, By the way, I just want to give you a little unsolicited advice. Yes, please. Which is that um, you should mention that to your therapist so that there's not this weirdness, this awkwardness in the room that, Hey, I discovered that you used to work in the entertainment business. Now I understand why you seem to really, you know, have this knowledge of the entertainment business yeah. when I talk about it. I know. It's funny that I don't, it's funny how I don't want to. Yeah. Why? What, what do you think will happen? <sighs> um, I think it'll be awkward. I think it'll turn the therapy session into me potentially working something out with her instead of what I want to work on. Um, but most, but but really, it's I'm my, my fear of the intensity of that exchange. Even though I'm sure it wouldn't be that weird at all, it just feels like it might be weird. Yeah, I think a lot of people are reluctant to bring things up with their therapist that's going on between them. Mm-hmm. You know, it's much easier to talk about. Well, here's what's going on with my partner. Here's what's going on with my boss. But right. they want to talk about what's going on in the room. But it's almost like the therapy room is a little lab mm-hmm. and the interactions that you have in there are very similar to interactions that you would have on the outside. So I would, I would try it and see what happens. I, there was a, a, a recent session where she had been running late and then we started and I just felt a little bit like she was a little more, there was just something short fused about her and I was aware of it and it made me sort of, take a step back a tiny bit um, and maybe like get to my point faster. And I even debated bringing it up for the reason you're saying like, and thinking it would be good for me to practice mentioning that, but I didn't. Yeah. She would probably (laughs) say something like, you're right. You know, I was rushing around and you're right. And I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. Okay. These are good notes for next time. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I want to ask you, your book is very personal. And my understanding of therapy is that, um, you know, for the therapist, patient, client relationship to work, it's good for there to be a bit of mystery about the therapist. So how did, uh, you know, how did you, what was your decision process like in terms of how personal to be in your book? Well, I wasn't even supposed to be writing this book in the first place. I was, I was originally supposed to be writing a book about happiness, um, that I very much didn't want to write. And I would sit down every day and I, I couldn't get myself to write it. And 
um, I'm going to spoil something for you since you haven't <laughs> gotten that far. But um, I, you know, my agent at the time, and I want to emphasize at the time, said, um, you know, you'll never write another book if you cancel this book. Mm. And um, I, I, you know, I felt like I was starting off as a therapist at that time. And I felt like it just felt so shallow. It felt like it couldn't capture the depth and the richness of what was happening in the therapy room and what people's lives were really like. It was, it was based on an article you had written, right? Well, originally I'd written this article called how to land your kid in therapy. Why our obsession with our kids happiness may be dooming them to unhappy adulthoods. Publishers wanted that book for a ridiculous sum of money. And I can only say that because I said no, Mm -hmm. which people thought was insane. I thought it was insane. Um, You know, how do you how do you say no to that? Um, You know, not everybody gets to write the thing that they want to write. And so if somebody's going to give you a bunch of money to write it, you should write it. But I didn't. I couldn't. And it had to do with where I was in my life about really wanting to do things that felt meaningful to me. I didn't want to just eke out a, a helicopter parenting book for the sake of eking out the book. And I just couldn't do it. It felt so untrue to where I was in my life and what I wanted to do going forward, especially in this new career as a therapist. Um, And so I turned that down and and they said, well, then write a book about happiness, not for a huge sum of money, by the way. Um, (laughs) And so um, and so I thought, okay. um, And so, you know, every day I would sit down and try to write it and I couldn't. And I was so ashamed of that that I couldn't tell anybody. So people would say, how's the book going? And I'd say, well, you know, it's going, writing the book. <laughs> I was like that closet gambler who gets dressed for work every day and then goes to the casino instead of the office. Um, you know, my casino was Facebook or my, my <laughs> other casino was writing fabulously witty emails to my boyfriend. <laughs> that was when we were together. Um, and so I didn't want to look at that at all. And in fact, I didn't tell my therapist about it for quite a while. Um, so in terms of why did I write this book, eventually, spoiler, I do cancel that contract, um, despite, you know, all of the disaster that supposedly will ensue. I didn't have another idea for a book, but it was more important for me not to write something that I didn't feel proud of or that really did a service to people um, than to put something out there that felt um, not meaningful. So so I, I didn't have another book idea, and I just thought I won't write another book. And then one night... I just started writing about everything that had been going on with my this this path that I've been on with my own therapy and later I decided to turn that into a book not because I thought I would write about me and my therapy I actually wanted to bring people into the therapy room behind the curtain let them see what it really is and what people's real lives look like not the Instagram Facebook version but mm-hmm. but real lives the heroic moments the transformations the struggles the pain the joy all of it and um and then I thought, you know, if my patients are going to be that vulnerable, it would almost be fraudulent for me not to show what I was going through too, not to show my own humanity. And so I become the fifth patient in the book and we see my four patients and then we follow me as I go through my own therapy with Wendell. And has, do, do you, let me rephrase that. How do you think it might affect um, your practice? Um, Well, so far, I'm seeing how it does or doesn't. Um, Some people have said, so I just just got back from the first part of my book tour, and um, some people have said absolutely nothing, and they might be like you, (laughs) meaning they've read it, um, or they know about it, Mm -hmm. but they don't want to say anything. Um, And so I, you know, I I, will see how how that plays out. I don't want it to be the elephant in the living room. And, and I think that, uh, you know, and several people have said, hey, I, I read your book while you were on book tour. Um, and we've talked about it. But, you know, it's not, it's not about talking about me or my personal life. That's not how those conversations go. It's more about what was it like reading that book and, um, you know, and how it relates to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, the book is so... You did such a masterful job the in terms of structure and the writing and all of that. Was it hard to find the structure? Actually, no, um, because I feel like all of the all of the chapters are in conversation with each other. So even though the four people that I follow are very different from one another, um, you know, in terms of age and gender and the kinds of problems that they're having and their personalities are vastly different. Um I think that we can find aspects of ourselves in all of those stories. So I feel like every chapter kind of speaks to something that came before and also speaks to something that's about to come after, even if, even though the chapters alternate between um, sessions with different people. And you also see 
the outside world, right? So it's not just like we're sitting in rooms the whole mm-hmm. time. But, you know, you see me in my consultation group. You see me out in the world in this chapter called Embarrassing Public Encounters <laughs> where, um, you know, I run into patients out, you know, uh, in the wild, as we say. Um, you see me in the kitchen with my colleagues. You see me at home with my family. Mm-hmm. You see me talk to my friends. So where are you from originally? Los Angeles. Okay. And what was your what was your upbringing like? Um, I, you know, grew up in the 70s, um, which was, it was very suburban here in Los Angeles. It was, um, it was kind of like Mayberry, you know, like you'd run, and I still feel it's that way, that I still run into people from elementary school or high school just walking down the street. Mm -hmm. Um, It was, it felt like a a very suburban kind of typical childhood in that way. Do you consider it a happy childhood? I think it was a mixed childhood. Um, you know, I certainly had my struggles as a kid, um, but there were a lot of great things too. So I would say it was mixed. What made you want to become a therapist? Um, I, so I took a very, very circuitous route to becoming a therapist. As you said, I started off in the entertainment business. Um, I worked in film development, then I moved over to network television, I was working at NBC. I was like a baby executive. And um, this was the year that Friends and ER were premiering. And so one of the things that I got to do on my job was hang out in the actual ER with an actual physician mm-hmm. um, and who was consulting on the show. And I would spend a lot of time there, way more than I should have been. And, you know, at first I was like, oh, it's research. Um, You know, we had to kind of make sure that the trauma-based scenes were accurate and all those things. The only thing that was inaccurate, just as a trivia note, was that we didn't always cover up George Clooney's face when we should have, (laughs) because who wants to cover up that face? So there were times when maybe he should have had a mask on. Um, But everything else was extremely accurate. Um, But I really loved the the real stories that I was seeing in the ER, as opposed to, I love the, the kind of rich fictional stories that we were telling. Um, but I really love real life out in the ER. And so I went to medical school. Um, and when I was in medical school, everybody was talking, I was up at Stanford and it was sort of the end of the dot-com boom. And everyone was talking about managed care and how I wouldn't really have the kinds of relationships I wanted to have with my patients. I had this fantasy of being sort of like the family doctor Mm. who guides people through their lives. Um, and so I left medical school and I became a journalist where I got to really, tell people's stories um, and delve into their lives in a, in a deep way. Um, how, how did you transition from medical school to journalism? Oh, so when I got to medical school, um, I actually published a book based on my diaries. And then I started writing for magazines and newspapers while I was in medical school. So I was already doing both mm-hmm. things. And then, um, and then when I left, I just continued doing the journalism. Um, and then later, when I had done that for about 10 years, I had a baby and I realized that um, I needed adults to talk to, verbal <laughs> adults to talk to <laughs> during the day. Um, and so I called up the dean at the medical school. It was kind of like at, there was a, at a certain point, the UPS guy would come all the time because of, you know, you're always ordering baby supplies. <laughs> and I would say like, how about those diapers and how's the weather? And he would literally back away to his big brown truck. And I thought, I really, really need some colleagues. <laughs> this is not working out. Uh, I loved my child, by the way, for the record, still do. Um, but it was, um, you know, it was different from when I was a journalist and I I, I did get out in the world in a different way. Um, and so um, I called up the dean at, at Stanford where I was in medical school and I said, maybe I should come back and do psychiatry. And she said, you know, you're probably going to be doing medication management and prescribing Celexa for a lot of your day. And I don't think that's what you want to do. So you're welcome to come back. But I think you should get a graduate degree in clinical psychology and do the work you want to do. And it was the best advice that anybody could have given me. Um, So that's what I did. And that's how I became a therapist. And I feel like I went from helping people to tell their stories as a journalist to helping people change their stories as a therapist. And when you were in medical school, what kind of doctor were you intending to be? Medical school in the first couple of years is about exploring, um, you know, the different options. So I looked at, I knew I didn't want to do ER medicine because I wanted those longer relationships. Um, at one point I was looking at pediatric oncology, but, and I didn't even have a kid then, but even then I found it really, really difficult. Um, it was, you know, you take it home with you. Um, and so I really felt like that was, that was just 
too much. I couldn't separate mm-hmm. out sort of being in the hospital and being with these kids, which I really liked. Um, from, you know, sometimes kids would die and, and sometimes kids who had to go through really brutal treatments. And I, so I, I, I realized that wasn't something that I would want to do. Um, you know, and I looked, I looked at internal medicine, uh, that was often more geriatric medicine mm-hmm. as it turned out. Um, it, it wasn't really sort of that family doctor that I had imagined. And I get to do now as a therapist, I get to see people on an ongoing basis and I get to really get, um, you know, I think invested in, in the work that we're doing. Do you take it home with you? Um, yes and no. I would say don't take it home with me in a bad way. I think that I certainly think about people. Um, you know, you can't do this kind of work and not have them have an impact on you. So I certainly think about people, but I don't, um, you know, it doesn't keep me up in the middle of the night. Mm -hmm. And how would you describe the difference between interviewing someone in a journalistic sense and what you do in the therapy room? And I should be honest, my, my question is a little bit, uh, selfishly motivated in that I have a background as a journalist as well. And I think when I started, started doing this, started hosting a podcast, my interviews were, well, I just had to find out like, what's the, I had to tease out the differences between, you know, taping something to transcribe later and write up versus having a compelling conversation. Yeah, I think they're actually really similar in that as a journalist, one of the things that I think some people, you know, when they're starting out as journalists don't realize is that you have to listen, that you can't just have your list of questions and, um, you know, and then not listen to what the person's saying. And then you just go forward with your next question. You're actually having a conversation and you want to see where the conversation goes. And you also need to have silences because somebody might start to say something and then in that silence, their their mind goes somewhere else and it usually goes to a very interesting place. And I think the same thing happens in the therapy room. It reminds me a little bit of my, my first session where I had to do an intake. This was for at a clinic. And my only job was to get this list of questions answered. And I thought, well, how hard can that be, right? Um, it was a disaster. <laughs> it was just a real disaster. This is the woman who, the, who cried? Yes. Ton. Yeah. She she comes in and she tells me that, you know, I say, why are you here? And she says, um, you know, I lately I can't stop crying. And then as if on cue, she starts crying. And I don't mean crying like a few tears. She's It's like a tsunami. And I don't know at that point, because I've never been in the room alone with a patient, um, do I look at her Mm -hmm. because I want her to know that I'm with her? Do I look away because if I'm looking at her, she'll feel stared at and self-conscious? You know, at a certain point when she really doesn't stop crying, do I interrupt and ask a question? Do I say something to try to calm her down? Um, I had no clue. And, you know, the other thing is it's it's awkward anyway, I think, when someone's crying hysterically in front of you. But when they're a complete stranger and you know nothing about them and you've never done it before, um, I just wanted my supervisor in the room so badly. Um, you know, but then she, you know, she starts talking and I'm not getting my questions answered like you were asking about the journalist, mm-hmm. right? Um, but I let her go where she's supposed to go. And yet in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, can I get fired from this gig on the first day? Cause I'm not getting these questions answered. Right. And eventually I look at the clock cause I know I have limited time and only 10 minutes have passed. And then she's talking more and I look again and then only 10 minutes have passed. And I realize there are no batteries in the clock and I don't know. <laughs> do I just randomly say our time is up? Right. You know, have 60 minutes passed, have 30 minutes passed. I don't know. Eventually she looks up and says, Oh, that went so fast. I can't believe it's over. And I, follow where she's looking and there was a clock on the wall behind me the whole time but I think that's that's a lesson in it takes people a while to tell their story and you have to follow where they're going Mm -hmm. um and then in the book your super when you talk about the clock issue with your supervisor she says don't bullshit patients how how do you feel like you've incorporated that advice Oh, that was the best lesson I could have gotten on my first day, which is she said, always be honest with them. If there's not a battery in the clock, just say, hey, I I distracted by the fact that there's no battery in the clock. Let me just go get one that works. And then I could have relaxed and really followed her much better during the session. I had a therapist, um, my first therapist, who said like much later in our, not not at the beginning, but we had, we've been seeing each other a while. Um I'd been seeing her a while. She all of a sudden she's like, I'm so sorry. I never ever do this, but something I ate didn't agree with me. And she ran out of the room for the rest of my life. I always wonder, did she throw up? Did she have diarrhea? What was going on? 
What do you think? If, 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 if you eat something that doesn't agree with you, uh, listeners, this is Tony, guest producer. Uh, Who's becoming you're more still and more... calling me a guest No, I producer. feel like you're a regular all producer. Right, I, was, right. I was justifying why I hadn't introduced you at the beginning. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's all right. Yeah. What, are we, what do we think? If you eat something that doesn't agree with you, that causes you to run out of the room, what I mean, happens when you get out? What happens when you get out? Yeah, like what did she have to do? Oh, I mean, I, I think that's even either way. I can okay. go either way. Because both, both are run-worthy. Right. Yeah. Lori, what do you want to weigh in <laughs> on whether I think she threw it's pretty up or apparent had to... what she had to do? Um, I don't know. I mean, it came out one end or the other. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> and then my big question was like, you know, did she wash her hands and was there is there Purell in the room? But right. that's just me. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't worried about. You know, the funny thing is that I have no memory of what happened after, so I assume it was just a regular good session after. But I know personally, if something like that happened to me, I would not be able to return and be professional. No. I don't remember her looking green or... I don't know. <laughs> but, but she was honest with you. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the point, um, you know, is that we are real people. And I know that sounds obvious, but I think sometimes people expect that we're not going to have situations like that where you eat something that doesn't agree with you and you've got to go to the bathroom now. Right. Right. Um. I wanted to ask, you mentioned in the book, you sort of map out um, the way a session goes and you say that the last three to five to 10 minutes are for putting the patient back together. Um, can you talk a little more about what, what that means to put them back together and like how you do it? Yeah. I think so many times people imagine that when we're looking at the clock during a session that they're boring us <laughs> and they're not boring us. Um, it's more that we have an intuitive sense of the rhythm of a session Um, but we want to make sure that if something very intense is happening, that it's not going to be like you have two minutes left and we, and you're in the middle of something Mm. incredibly painful or difficult or intense. And then we have to say, well, I'll see you next week. Um, to be continued. That's right. (laughs) Right. That's what I've always heard. Um, you know, there are, there are all kinds of ways to do that, but I, but I think that we don't want to leave the patient holding all of that for the entire week. You know, on the other hand, there are patients who will do what we call doorknob disclosures, (laughs) which is when there's about a minute left in the session or they're walking to the door and they'll say, oh, by the way, I found my biological mother on Facebook. (laughs) See you next week. (laughs) And you're you're just sitting there with that going, what do I do with that information? But then they've kind of given it to you and you have to sit with it all week. Um, but a lot of people do that because, you know, and they're usually in the session talking about something that doesn't really matter. And the whole like time. Like next door? <laughs> the right. next door app? <laughs> right, right. Um, and you're wondering, what are they not telling me? Because I don't want them to have to do a doorknob disclosure. I don't want them to just, you know, save this till the last minute. I want to be able to talk about this with them before they leave. Mm-hmm. And you also talk about trying to find the right balance between, or like trying to, the, trying to plant seeds when the time is right, when the gra- the soil is fertile, planting seeds, meaning like giving them indications of what they might be doing. How do you figure out that timing? I think you have to assess for their readiness to hear something. And sometimes people, you know, very much can't hear something, but you don't want to waste their time. So you might plant a seed, you see how they react, you kind of float something out there. Um, if they are very... Um, you know, they want, they don't want to go there at all. Okay. You, you floated it out there. It, it, it goes in, it goes mm-hmm. in a little bit. You just keep like, you know, tossing these little, <laughs> these little, uh, you know, nuggets their way. And then that helps them to get more ready to hear something they really need to hear. When someone first, well, maybe not when they first walk in, but in, at the beginning, do you, as a therapist, usually get a pretty good sense of, of what their deal is? Sometimes I think it takes a while to get to really know somebody, but you you have a sense from how they interact in those first few sessions, I would say, maybe not the very first, but in the first few, you get a pretty good sense of where they are. One thing I'm looking for when they come in is um, not only why they're there, but why now? Um, you know, why this day, this week, this month did they call when maybe something has been going on for much longer? Mm-hmm. So I'm looking not only for what's not working, but I also want to scan for strengths. I want to know something made them ready. 
And the big thing I want to know is how ready are they to change? Because we always say that insight is the booby prize of therapy, (laughs) meaning you can have all the insight in the world, but if you don't make changes out in the world, the insight is useless. So if they're just going to come in and say, yeah, now I understand why I I have these arguments in my marriage, and then they go home and they do the exact same thing Mm -hmm. in their marriage – they're wasting their time in therapy. So my my job is not only to help them see something they don't already see, but to help them to make changes based on that information. Were you ready to change when you started seeing Wendell? And in what ways do you think you needed to change? I wasn't ready to change. I was very much there for validation. <laughs> um, I wanted him to say, you know, yeah, this is so, this is, you know, it's uh, what my son used to call in his, his little board books, a beautiful oops. Uh, <laughs> you know, like it was a, a mistake where there's sort of a silver lining. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that wasn't what happened. You know, we ended up talking about all the things in my life that I wasn't talking about in terms of meaning and, um, you know, what the second half of my life was, was going to look like. Do you feel like you have more clarity about that now? Oh, absolutely. And I think, too, one of the patients that we follow in the book is this woman who went on her honeymoon and came back, and she thought that what she felt in her breast was a sign of pregnancy because they wanted to have a baby, but um, it was a sign of cancer. And at first, it's very treatable, and she seems done. And then um, six months later on her sign-off scan, it turns out there's this very aggressive form of untreatable cancer. And she asked me if I'll stay with her until she dies. And as we go through that experience together, it, it when I talked earlier about the chapters being in conversation with each other, my own questions about, you know, oh, I don't have all the time in the world, were heightened by the fact that mm. I'm watching someone who really doesn't have all the time in the world. It was really interesting. There's a couple of times in the book um, where you wonder with this particular patient, what is the goal of therapy for them? Like, is it just to be palliative? Is it just to comfort them if they don't have that much time left? Or is it to help them, you know, come to realizations? That must be tough. Well, especially with her. So normally we're pretty clear about what the goals are, but I think with somebody like her where, um, you know, she probably wouldn't have ended up in therapy if she weren't diagnosed with cancer, that she didn't have a lot of other issues. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think one thing that she did learn about herself along the way was that she'd always done everything by the book. And she had, you know, she had met the guy and had the job and, you know, everything was sort of by the book in a good way. Um, She had lots of things to be grateful for, but she never let herself kind of let loose. And one of the things she really did when she realized that, that she didn't have much time was she let loose, you know, on steroids. Um, and it was great. It was great to see her come out that way. And, and I think that she might not have had that experience otherwise. But one of my favorite details, and I don't know if this is a, because, because these, you, you changed many of the identifying details, but in the book, she decides she really wants to get a job at Trader Joe's because the Trader Joe's uh, clerks are seem to be so in the moment and so truly themselves. Right. And so in her that. job, it was all about getting tenure and, you know, moving forward, you know, sort of like the climbing the ladder, which she had done. Um, but this was a, a tangible thing in the moment. She just thought if even in those, those two minutes that you're ringing somebody up, that you have this interaction and people feel good, that was what she wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And her, her husband, by the way, thought she was insane. Um, you know, and then, and then he sort of got on board. But, you know, we, he was like, you have a limited time left and what you want to do is you want to work at Trader Joe's. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, I think something, you know, like, I think you need to think about this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how does being a therapist affect your parenting? Because I've had many, you know, I have to say, I've been doing this podcast for a long time and I think you are the first practicing therapist that I've had on. Um, but I've had many children of therapists on and they have a lot to say about that experience. So (laughs) what's it like from where you sit? You know, there's a chapter in the book called how kids deal with grief. And it's about my son's feelings about, um, his loss when the boyfriend breaks up with me because he's experiencing a loss too. And as a, as a parent, you want to make it better for him. Um, but as a, as a, as a therapist, I know that I would need him to, to, to let him sit in his sadness, Mm -hmm. to feel whatever he feels, to process it the way that he's going to process it. Um, and so I think that that's a good thing to know that, 
but at the same time, I feel like the the advantage of having a, a mother who's a therapist or a parent who's a therapist is, um, you know, that nothing gets shoved under the rug. Um, the downside is you'll be totally screwed up anyway. I mean, like, you know, because we're human and we're parents and we make a million mistakes in the course of a day. Um, so you have a book called Marry Him, which is about, will you tell me what it's about? So it has a really unfortunate subtitle that I fought vehemently against. Um, it has the word settling in it. The book has nothing to do with settling. It's a book. Um, it's it's a research book because I, I was writing it from the point of view of being a journalist. And I'm sort of a guinea pig in the book as we look at all the research and I talk to all the um, experts in the various fields from behavioral economists to historians to um, psychologists to sociologists. And um, what I'm trying to discover in that book is what makes for happy lasting marriages. Um, because it seemed like so many people were dating in a way where people were being treated like commodities. It was almost like people were shopping and they were missing out on opportunities to really get to know whether they might have a deeper connection with somebody. Is that a function of online dating? I think a lot of it has to do with online dating and apps and, um, you know, they, one of the things I cite in Marry Him is uh, these researchers did this experiment where they had people write down what they were looking for in a partner, and then they sent them on these dates. And it turned out that the people that they connected with in person did not match mm. the criteria of what they had written down. Those are the people they wanted to go on second dates with were not the people who most closely um, resembled the people that they had in their heads. So I think that was really important because so many times – people rule people out so quickly because of this perceived availability of so many people. You don't mm -hmm. like somebody um, in the 30 minutes you spent having coffee with them, if you even get that far. Um, so, you know, you just go right back to your app. Yeah. Um, but what I just, what I, uh, I discovered from, from, you know, reading up on you is that a couple times it seems like you've been sort of, uh, the source of some online hate and there's been a backlash and I did not find, I didn't see anyone saying anything negative. I just saw references to it. So what, what, what happened and what was that like? Well, I think what happened was um, a lot of people who didn't read the book um, felt like, you know, they made some assumptions about what the book was about that they thought it would be about that you have to lower your standards that because settling was in the subtitle. Right. And it's, it's ironic because the book is about having higher standards, actually, mm -hmm. about the things that matter. So it's about how, you know, people will be like, oh, I'm so in love with him, but he never calls when he says he will. And he, you know, and it's like, you need to have higher standards. You need to pick the guy where there's kindness, there's generosity, there's reliability, there's chemistry, of course. Um, but, you know, do you really want to spend your life with someone that makes you anxious all the time? So I think a lot of the online hate was, it's almost like seeing the movie poster and saying, I hate that movie. <laughs> I hate the creators of that movie, even though well, you've never seen the Well, the charge was that it was like an anti-feminist right, message, right? Right, Because um, you were saying, just settle, which is not what you were saying. No, I was but, not saying that. Right. Let's be clear. I was yeah, not yeah. saying that. But that's what people thought you were. That's what they assumed I was right. saying. Um, and it was really hard um, with that book because, um, and that's why I insisted that the title of this book be my choice <laughs> um, because, and that was before, I mean, in the book contract, it says, I get to choose Good. Um, because it was such a disaster. The book for people who have read Mary Him, so many people, I still get mail every week from people who are like, my kid is now five and, and, you know, I'm so happily married and I never would have gone on a second or third date with this person and I'm so in love or, you know, whatever it is. They send me pictures. They send me, you know, it's almost like they feel like they're family. And I love that because I think it's been really valuable for people who have read the book. But I think for people who, you know, really just were so put off, understandably so, by the way, by the title, um, you know, there was a, somebody told me that they wished that I got cancer. Oh, my God. I mean, there was so much online. People are so friendly online. I know. It was charming. Um, <laughs> but it was hard. It was hard because I, I felt like people were criticizing something that I didn't believe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that must be very – well, I – I, I say it like I, I can only imagine a situation like that. Having been through situations that are very similar, yeah, it sucks to, to be misunderstood. Did you see this happening before it happened? Yeah, that was why I fought so hard. Yeah. And then at that point, my choice was, well, um, you know, we're either publishing the book like this or we're not. And there was nothing I could do about mm. it. Was that a fight with the publishing company? Yes. 
Oh, that sucks. Um, and then also you wrote an, uh, a story for the New York Times in 2014 about how uh, egalitarian marriages are leading to less sex. What, um, and just to explain that, uh, so marriages where there's a lot of equality between the husband and wife, which is sort of a, a more modern look, look at marriages, are you'd think that their sex life would also be great because emotionally they're so close, but it's it, it, there's there's a decreased amount of sex in marriages like that. What made you? Uh, how did you discover that? And like, what made you want to write about that? Um, I had been reading a lot about that. I I think one thing that I always like to do as a journalist is look at something in the culture and then look at the psychology behind it. Um, and I, I really felt like this is really interesting because I think we, most, most people that I know, um, want to have these, what we call egalitarian marriages where, you know, the, the household chores are divvied up in a, in a way that feels fair to both people and equal. Um, but what the research was showing was that, that when, um, men did more kind of traditionally female things around the house and women did more traditionally male things around the house that they were having less sex. That doesn't necessarily mean that their marriages are less happy. It just means that they're, the frequency of the sex is less. And so I talked to a lot, again, this wasn't my opinion. Um, I talked to a lot of um, researchers who were studying marriage and who were specifically studying this phenomenon and talked to them. And, and I thought it was a really interesting piece because I think people spoke to the various sides of it. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't again, like marry him. It wasn't like a good or a bad. It was just, it is. Mm -hmm. And then what does it mean? And maybe we haven't evolved to the place yet where, um, you know, women find men doing, um, you know, kind of more female oriented chores sexy. I think women appreciate it, mm -hmm. but do they want to jump them? Right. Right. <laughs> and that was sort of the question. Yeah. It's really interesting. Um, let's take some questions that listeners sent in on Patreon and Twitter. I'm on Patreon, patreon.com slash Allison Rosen is where you go. You can get all sorts of behind the scenes stuff, uh, bonus episodes, little videos. Uh, I do a live stream, stuff like that. Check it out. Patreon.com slash Allison Rosen. And one of the things, uh, that you get if you are a subscriber is you can, uh, submit questions ahead of, of everyone else. And we have a little song. When we ask, they send them in They're wondering how you have been So thanks so much for answering These questions from our fans Okay, Whitney C. says Do you see the recent astrology craze As good, bad, or neutral therapeutically? I think it serves a different purpose um, You know, I think that what we do in therapy Is not predicting what's going to happen with people, but talking about what is already happening and then seeing how people will have agency in what happens next. Mm. Jennifer says, any thoughts on remote online therapy? Lots of companies have been cropping up that allow you to get help from home, but also some controversy about the vetting process of those employed. Yeah. So a colleague of mine likes to call Skype therapy. She says it's like doing therapy with a condom on. <laughs> and it's because it's very different from the energy in the room. Um, you know, there's something that we don't get enough of unrelated to therapy. We just we don't get enough FaceTime with people where we don't have like our phones on the table or a screen on the wall or something pinging or dinging or vibrating. <laughs> and um, and so um, I think that access is a big problem with therapy. And if people can if that increases access, that's great. But I do think it's a very different experience from what you what you get face to face. Mm -hmm. um, okay, Casey Ann Zimney says, "I'm not sure if you'll be able to find a viable question in this, but I often wonder how my parenting is affecting my kids and how soon they'll end up in a therapist's office talking about how I ruined their life. I'm hyperbolizing, but I do wonder about things like when to discipline and when to allow them to make mistakes versus sheltering from disappointment. I know you have some background in mindful parenting and just curious about your parenting philosophy. My parenting philosophy has to do with what Donald Winnicott, the uh, the eminent British psychiatrist, said, uh, that um, you need to be the good enough parent. Mm. And I think so many people are so worried about being the perfect parent. And most of us are good enough parents, meaning we make mistakes, but we're generally present in terms of emotionally present for our kids. But that doesn't mean that, you know, we're, I think, I think we, we compare ourselves unnecessarily to other parents and, um, our kids just want to know that 
we see them, we hear them. Um, we also have our own lives. That's really good for kids to see. So I don't have a particular philosophy other than to say, I think everybody should strive to be the good enough parent. Was the upshot of how to land your kid in therapy, and sorry if I just butchered the title, that being so concerned with their happiness is smothering to them? Yeah, that they don't they don't allow them to experience any difficult feelings, mm. right? So they don't get in the school play, a phone call gets made to the school, you know, what happened there? Um, you know, they fall down on the playground. Oh my God, are you hurt? Um, you know, why isn't my kid getting more playtime in, in basketball? Like, why did so-and-so's kid get that? Mm -hmm. um, all this interference, or even just when your kid is sad, trying to cheer them up, like, oh, let's go to Disneyland, <laughs> as opposed to just like, no, that thing that happened at lunch, that was really hard. Yeah. And then not trying to solve it for them. I think so many of us, we just like home in on, here's the solution. I have a solution. Well, you know, if Jane said that to you at lunch, then, you know, you should have lunch with Stella. You know, <laughs> and it's like, no, they, they let them figure it out. Mm -hmm. um, just hear what, again, like journalism, hear what they have to say, let them talk. And usually they have really good ways of dealing with their problems if you just give them the space to do that. And it's great practice for, you know, developing those skills as they grow up. Mm -hmm. uh, Tamara Haddis says, I remember her book, Stick Figure, and what a poignant job she did describing her eating disorder. How has her recovery been? So I think stick figure ends in a good place, which is I had a very, I think, unusual experience, which is that it was the year that I was 11. And that was the year that I really struggled with that. Is that the book that's based on your diaries? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so I, I have a different experience than I think a lot of people who maybe develop eating disorders later, um, later in their teens, and then struggle more into their 20s. So do you feel recovered? Oh, yeah. And what do you think at 11, what do you, uh, what sort of led up to, to finding yourself? You were anorexic, right? Yeah. What, what led to that? Do you think? Um, you know, I think it was a, a, a bunch of factors. Nobody really knows in general what causes eating disorders. They tend to happen. Um, some people have, they, they look, they're looking at sort of genetic causes, meaning like, is your personality mm -hmm. more the kind of personality that's going to react to the world in a certain way? Family structure and family dynamics have a lot to do with it. Um, you know, in my case, I was, I was really young and, and, um, it started when, um, I wanted to stay home when my parents wanted us to go away for spring break to this family thing. And it was, there was something hugely important for me at home and I kind of went on strike and I went on a, an eating strike. What can you, what was it? The hugely important thing? Oh, it was a boy girl party. It was my very first boy girl party, right? Which matters. When it does. You're yeah. Um, and, but, but it was, I think it was this feeling of not having, you know, agency or control and, and not being seen and heard. Mm -hmm. um, not that they should have, not, not that, you know, if you, if you make your kid go on the vacation, they're going to become anorexic, right? <laughs> so it's not like that. It just that it was like the straw that broke the camel's back. Whereas, you know, a lot of other things clearly had been going on. Um, but again, I think that mine was a little bit unusual. And I just keep saying that because I think there are a lot of people out there who are struggling and they might think, well, um, you know, I don't understand or, you know, that's not my experience. So I, I can't really speak to, I would say, the more traditional experience of, of what an eating disorder is like. Mm -hmm. Do you still keep a diary? No, I don't. How long did you? Um, you know, I did it when I was in that tweeny phase. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. And we also have some questions that came in on Twitter. Okay. West Anthony would like to know, is it worth it to go on living if you know you will never find happiness? And then he says, I know this one is kind of rough, so it's okay if you don't ask it. But I said to him, no, I will ask it. That's a really great question because that sounds like a person in the throes of depression. And in depression, your, your thoughts are very distorted. You can't see beyond the moment. Um, you know, most people who are depressed cannot imagine a time when they're not going to be depressed. Mm -hmm. And that, I really urge people like that to get help now. Um, because this idea that nothing will get better, um, it won't get better if you do nothing. It will get better if you go see somebody and get some help. Do you believe depression is biological or situational or like what's your your 
and, and the reason I, I almost asked it and then I stopped and then I did ask it. And the reason I stopped is because maybe phrasing it as do you believe is the wrong way to put it because maybe, maybe science has figured that out already. But what are your thoughts on it? I think it's a combination of things. Um, you know, some people, depression, is a lot of mood disorders run in families, but that doesn't mean that because it runs in your family that you're necessarily going to experience that mood disorder. Mood disorders meaning anxiety, depression. Mm-hmm. But, you know, are you more predisposed? Um, yeah, but that doesn't mean that it's, you know, a life sentence. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, there are people who have no family history and it, it's situational. Um, and then there's just the we don't know. I learned something. There's a line, a couple of lines in your book that I loved about as a therapist, when someone comes in and they're, I forget, you'll have to say what it actually is. I forget if it's like when they come in and they're depressed, you have to wonder like, are they just surrounded by assholes? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a, it, it's not my quote. It's some, somebody had said, you know, then again, when, you know, a supervisor, I think had said that, or maybe it was someone in my consultation group had said, um, you know, whenever somebody is depressed, first ask yourself, are they surrounded by assholes? Because <laughs> <laughs> that can be depressing. Uh, okay. Christy says, I'd like to hear about the different types of therapy and how they determine which is best for someone. The most important factor in how well you'll do in therapy and how successful it will be is your relationship with your therapist. Even more than the type of therapy, the modality that I think she's asking about, even more than how much experience they have or what their training was. So it's really about going in, talking to somebody, and seeing what it's like to sit in the room with them. Is there a specific modality that you tend toward? I don't. Um, I think that I look a lot about in, in terms of attachment and relationships, but it depends on the person. I think everybody's therapy is unique to them. It's tailored to them. There are certain things that we know that we use for, you know, just to have in our toolkit and mm-hmm. just to have theoretically as we're thinking about what would help this person. Um, but, you know, it's kind of like improv, meaning in the moment you do what is best in that moment and you, you can't you can't sort of script out how the therapy is going to go. And did your training favor a certain style? I did a lot of psychodynamic training. So is that, and what is that? Yeah. That's a good question. (laughs) You're like, yeah, moving on. Um, (laughs) Psychodynamic training is um, looking at the ways that you interact in the context of your family. You know, what, what was your childhood like? Um, what were those experiences like and how do they inform the way that you act now? Everybody comes to therapy with a story and often there are these old narratives that they're carrying around like I'm unlovable or I'm not good enough or in the case of John, the first person that you beat in the book, <laughs> I'm better than everybody else mm-hmm. and everybody else is an idiot. Um, so, you know, people Including carry around. you at times. He thinks I'm an idiot. He <laughs> does. Yeah. Um, and yet, right? And yet we form this really, really meaningful relationship. Um, and he develops this affection for me, which is very palpable, mm-hmm. uh, which, you know, we may not expect at the very beginning. Um, so psychodynamic is about this, you know, how do, how do our childhoods inform the stories that we're carrying around in the present and how we relate both to ourselves and to other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. Susan Nyberg says, I know psychiatrists are also MDs, but when does a person need a psychologist versus a, I think she means psychiatrist. When does it, when does a person she says, when does a person need a psychologist versus a licensed counselor? Loved her book, by the way. I don't know if she meant to say psychiatrist or if her question is actually psychologist versus licensed counselor. Is there a difference between those two? Yes. So um, so a psychologist will have a PhD and a licensed counselor will have a master's. Um, so it just has to do with how long they've been in school, in graduate school. Um, and PhD programs often involve some research and, um, MFTs who are the licensed counselors, um, tend to do clinical work from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. So how would a person know? Well, actually I'm going to ask a more broad question, which I think a lot of people could benefit from. How does someone find a good therapist? 
there are so many ways to do that. Sometimes it's word of mouth, but sometimes people don't want to share their therapist. Um, and so sometimes I'll have somebody who's seeing me and they'll say, my friend really needs a therapist. I don't really want her coming to you. Um, it feels too close. So can you give me a referral? And I will absolutely do that. That's a great way to find Mm -hmm. a therapist, by the way. If your friend really likes her therapist, ask her therapist, ask her to ask her therapist, um, him or her to ask the therapist, you know, is there, is there a referral? So how would someone choose whether whether they should go to a psychiatrist, psychologist, or a licensed counselor? Um, I don't think that matters as much as what it's like to be in the room with that person. Mm -hmm. The only difference is that if you might want to explore medication, that you would do that with a psychiatrist. Right. Uh, But I would say even people who come to me who are on medication, um, sometimes while I'm seeing them, it becomes apparent that they might benefit from medication and I will send them for a consultation with a psychiatrist and then we we share the case, meaning that the person goes to that person for medication management, but I do the talk therapy. And it goes in reverse too, that sometimes a psychiatrist will say, I think this person could benefit from talk therapy and they'll refer them to me while that person manages the medication. Mm-hmm. And lastly, Mary says... How should one handle it if they're going into a session feeling really positive and upbeat and kind of uncertain of what to talk about on that given day? I don't want to search for something just because, but I also don't want to cancel when this happens occasionally. And that's the winner. That is the best question. <laughs> um, because I think so many people feel like on the drive over, they're coming, they're coming up with their opener. Mm-hmm. You know, like, what am I going to say? And what's my agenda? And what do I want to accomplish this hour? And yet the best sessions are the ones where there's not an agenda. Um, where you come in, you take some breaths, and you just see where your mind goes. And you'd be surprised where it goes. You might not even know that you were thinking about that. Mm -hmm. And those tend to be very fruitful sessions. Tony, do you have any questions? Uh, I really like that last question also. I I was wondering, and you kind of covered this, but uh, as uh, we're talking about trying to find a therapist, because I have found that to be a hard thing, and as someone who is a therapist who was then going to a therapist, was do you, was that harder or easier for you to find one, do you think? And how did you find? You, was, you probably addressed that in the book. I do. But. There's a, there's a chapter where um, Allison's smiling because she knows how it happened. Yes. But, um, but it's a good question. Yeah. So, you know, I was surrounded by therapists, which made it harder, ironically, mm-hmm. because you can't see somebody that you already know. So I'm in a... I didn't know that. That's right. Sad. Well, it has to be, you know, you, you can't talk to somebody that is your colleague who's doing therapy right next to you. Um, So I'm surrounded by colleagues. I go to a weekly consultation group. I have colleagues there where we talk about our cases. Um, I I have friends who are therapists. So some of the best therapists that I know were off limits to me. Um, And at the same time, weirdly, even though one of the main goals of this book is to normalize our emotional struggles and to, um, you know, to take the stigma out of, out of, anything that happens, uh, you know, with our mental health. Um, I was embarrassed that I needed to go to a therapist. And so I called up a colleague of mine and I was quote unquote asking for a friend. (laughs) And I very much engineered this, like the client is very high functioning, which is, you know, code for, you know, the person's not going to call a million times during the week Mm. and, you know, those kinds of things, Um, which we see people like that, by the way. And it's not that we don't want to see them. It's that we can't see everybody like that. Because we have to balance sort of the the more high-functioning clients with some of the people who are struggling more. Um, Is there a term you use for the non-high-functioning? Um, lower functioning. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's not – there's not – there's not um, – it's, it's not a value judgment. It's just kind of a description right. of this person needs a lot of support. And if everybody that we see needs that level of support, we wouldn't be able to handle it. We mm-hmm. wouldn't be able to give them that time. So you have to balance out the people who struggle less with the people who struggle more. Right. And and I, I am forgetting now, you specifically wanted a male therapist, right? I did, partly because I didn't want my colleague to wonder why I wasn't referring to her. Oh, I see. Um, but, the, but, the, but the bigger reason was that I felt like if – I felt weirdly like – a woman would be predisposed to agree that, yes, my boyfriend was, <laughs> was a jerk. Um, and that if I went to a man and he said that my boyfriend was a jerk, then I would know I was right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, one more quick question, then then I will let you return to your life. Uh, what was your um, relationship with and 
exposure to talk therapy as a kid? Well, I went to therapy as a kid because, as you know from Stick Figure, I talk about therapy in that book. Um, but I think it was very different back then. It was sort of uh, – it was more Freudian. Mm-hmm. Um in my case, because I was a kid, we, we basically played chess every session, which which actually is pretty typical of therapy with kids. Um, you know, you're talking to them as you're sort of playing games with them because mm-hmm. they're not going to sit there and, you know, on the couch the way an adult would and, and be verbal in that way. Right. Um, but I think it was, it was a different thing back then. I think now people really understand uh, therapy differently. In like in, in what in, in what way in the do you sense mean? in the sense of I think back then it was it was for people who were really having problems mm. and I think now it's for people who want to understand why they keep shooting themselves in the foot and ending up in the same place over and over what are mm. their patterns what are the ways that they're maybe getting in their own ways um, and sometimes you know that has to do with the ways that they're relating out in the world to other people sometimes it has to do with again these stories that are keeping them you know keeping them making them have this very sort of limited idea of what they can do and can't do. Mm -hmm. Lori, thank you so much for taking the time. Um, Really good talking with you. The book is maybe you should talk to someone. Everyone should go out and get it. I will include a link uh, in the episode summary of this episode, but why don't you tell people where they can find you, where they can find more info, et cetera. Sure. So uh, they can find more info on my website, which is lauriegottlieb.com. I'm also on Twitter at lauriegottlieb1. And the book is um, at bookstores everywhere. Thank you. Tony, where do we find you? At Tony Thaxton on Twitter and Instagram. And I am at Allison Rosen on Twitter and Instagram. My website is allisonrosen.com if you want more info. Um, I also have t-shirts, ringtones, uh, what am I forget? pins, etc. Patreon.com slash Allison Rosen. And I also have another podcast that I do with Greg Fitzsimmons. It is our parenting podcast, and that's called Childish. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Listeners, thank you for listening. I love you. Goodbye. Hey, do you know about the Alice and Rosen show? 